0: The S&P, the six this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me as always is the special man himself, the Doctor, Dr. Ni Mahati. How are you, buddy? I'm very good, man. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. Thank you. This Sunday well, it's Thursday morning, but you know, we're presenting it Sunday. This chick is getting old, mate. We're going to have to come up with some sort of new uh, new starting point. But in any case, thank you to our listeners who are joining us for this mailbag edition. Uh, well, I'll give I'll give a half apology for the length of Friday's podcast episode. If you enjoyed it, then you're welcome. If you hated it, I apologize. Uh, moreover, though, I think it was really good content and hearing Doc talk about big tech is always worth the price of admission, which frankly is zero, so stop complaining. Uh, no, but in all, in all seriousness, we did let that go a little bit longer than we normally do. Um, that's not our general length. If, if you enjoyed it, great. If you didn't, then, uh, uh, yeah, it's not going to happen again. Well, it probably will, but not um, not anytime soon. So, uh, it, I said I think it was worth it. I'm not I'm not super apologetic, but if it did kind of uh, scare your inbox and podcast feed, then we'll apologize. So, without further ado, mate, let's uh, not make this longer than it needs to be, and get straight on with the questions. What do you reckon? Well, let's do it. Let's get on with it. Beautiful. My first one comes from Derek. Derek says, hi, Dr. Scott and Dr. Anirban. I think you're both worthy of the doctor title. Now, Derek, I'm going to say up front, uh, I have too much respect for my colleague, Mr. Mahati or Dr. Mahati, and also my dear wife, who is also a doctor uh, and again, a PhD, not a medical doctor, to even think about accepting that title. So while I appreciate The honorary doctorate you've given me, uh, I shan't be using it because, uh, frankly, the work and effort, energy required, the the sheer application. uh, I am not capable, nor have I demonstrated that. So I, I appreciate the offer, but I won't take it. So there you go. He says, you can call me Derek. Thanks for the education and the impetus that your podcast has provided me. I've listened for over two years and have been a member of a number of services for one year in which time I've been very happy with the results, but I am mindful of taking a long-term view. Thank you, mate. That's very kind. We are glad you're taking a long-term view. We love getting short-term results, but we never expect them. We never want our members to take them for granted because, frankly, the the, the good market giveth and the good market can taketh away. And as we uh, record this on Thursday morning, mate, it's one of the red... Red days on the market. So right now, uh, whatever whatever money you had yesterday, is a little bit less of it today. Uh, so we're, we're familiar with that. But look, we do appreciate it, Derek. Thank you very much for the kind words. All right, mate, he's got a comment and three questions. So let's get to them. Comment. He says, when two partners in business always agree, one of them is unnecessary. <laughs> I think he's pointing at the fact that you and I argue a bit. He says while you both have similar fundamental philosophies about investing, you are prepared to discuss and share some different perspectives. And I'm sure many listeners like myself appreciate this. So thank you, Derek. Appreciate that, mate. Very kind of you to say. Because uh, you know we're not going to stop anytime soon. <laughs> we're both uh, we're both argumentative and opinionated bastards. So uh, you know we're not going we're not going to agree with each other for the sake of it. So we appreciate that you appreciate it. Thank you, mate. So what's All Derek right.
1: saying? Basically, that uh, we just we just opinion. We have random opinions and we just fight and we, like, you know, throw, like, flamethrowers at each other I, and stuff like that. I think
0: that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. All right. We're he's just
1: fine. <laughs> well, we should, we, we should send go. Derek a ticket, you know, or… or uh,
0: we should charge mission. Yeah, exactly. Well, because, exactly.
1: like, I mean, you know, it sounds like he's getting a lot of entertainment out of this. And then Derek, you know, you've got to… Right, like, right. for entertainment, when you go to the, when you go to the movies and event cinema, it's not free, right? <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll double the price of the podcast. How about that?
1: Exactly. I think that's right.
0: <laughs> all right. Uh, let's get to his questions. It's question one. One of my goals this year is to set up a brokerage account to buy US stocks. I currently only have ASX stocks using Comsec, and it might be nice to keep all my records under one website, but I'm a bit sick of giving up 1% on a $3,000 purchase before I even begin. So I like the idea of Charles Schwab's free service for US stock purchases. I understand I need a 25 minimum to a uh, 25 grand minimum, sorry, to open an account. Does this balance or the value of stocks... Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, so he said, does the balance or the value of the stocks and cash balance have to remain at at least $25,000? I don't know that, Doc. I don't know they have a minimum balance retain requirement, do they? It's just, a, it's just a way to open an account in the first place, I think you require a 25 grand commitment. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Don't quote, quote us on yeah. that, but I
0: think what you're saying is, is, I think, what I know as well. One for Schwab, Derek, uh, but we think that's true. <laughs> His second question, I own a number of ETFs. I understand there is a small fee on these. Is this fee taken out of dividends, or how is it paid, and can it be claimed against tax? Good question, Doc. Um,
1: I actually don't know. What What is the fees paid though? Like, I mean,
0: yeah. uh, So I'll i grab this one. you. Want. Fe- fees on ETFs yeah. are basically removed from the balance, Derek. So the the net tangible asset value of the of the the fund at any point in time is affected with the value of all the cash and shares that the fund holds. And the fund pays itself a fee out of that balance. So uh, uh, think of it like a bank account where the fees are deducted automatically. Uh, the amount you have in that bank account is simply the sum total of all the money you've put in, all the interest you've earned, less any fees that have come out. And ETFs work the same way. Um, in terms of tax, I'm pretty sure, in fact, I'm 100% sure. I'm, I shouldn't be percent I'm 99% sure. Um, and we have a few accountants listening to us who aren't shy of letting me know when I screw this up when I make uh, make tax calls. Um, my understanding is that the the it, because it's included in the balance, is effectively included already in your tax i don't think you can claim it as an annual expense but it lowers a bit like brokerage it lowers your um it lowers the profit you make you 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 can basically um subtract the brokerage from the gain you make and you pay tax on the difference i'm relatively sure that the etf uh uh, fees work the same way so he's basically Um, talking talking about the
1: etf management fee
0: yes correct Right, okay. Yes. Uh, but be aware, of course, there is also brokerage on ETFs as well as management fee, but I think you know that. Question three, I don't know this company at all. I own shares in Fluence, FLC, purchased before I was a member with Motley Fool. Do you have any knowledge or opinions on this company or what metrics I might use to make some educated guesses about its likely future prospects? Do you know Fluence, mate?
1: Um, A little bit, but not, not a whole lot. Um, okay. Yeah,
0: so, uh, so t- top line. Yeah, uh, what, you, what, what would you? Uh, what do you know? What don't you know about what it does to kind of give us a quick thumbnail sketch?
1: Um So well, uh, not enough to uh, be cool. useful. Let me put it that way.
0: There you go, Derek. So we're going to answer with "I don't know" rather than give, rather than give you a bum steer, mate. Uh, Derek finishes. Thanks again for your most excellent podcast. Most excellent. I like that. It's very. Uh, uh, what, was that? what was that? Who were that mob? Most excellent. Um, wasn't Wayne and Garth from Wayne's? What was the other two? Bill and Ted. Bill and Ted, most excellent. Um, thank you again for your most excellent podcast and for giving me greater confidence to invest and a more positive personal financial outlook, Derek. Thank you, Derek. That's a that's a wonderful question and a wonderful uh, email. Thank you for getting us started, mate. Um, another one from David. Hi, Scott and Doc. I love your work. Thank you, mate. I also appreciate your valuable insights to four separate emailed questions I've sent you. Wow, okay. Obviously, we should be charging David more. In fact, we should because he says the price of admission, a literal flattery, he says, seems cheap. No, sorry, I mean great value. It is, David. So far, you've paid exactly zero for four questions to be answered. We're going to have to look at that, mate. I think we might triple the cost of that one. All right. He says, what sets a stock's price? As the market opens. Now, he talks about some price on the morning of. Telstra apparently was trading a certain price, and Comstock says it's down, whatever, and all that kind of stuff. So, I'm not going to go into the details. It doesn't make great audio. Um, he says, This illustrates a mistake I think I've made as a newbie in assuming and anchoring to the price a share closed at the day before. I have assumed the gains or losses that show up the next day referred to the previous day's close. Now, here's the, here's the, the assumption is actually correct. David, it actually does. So I'll move on for that one. Um, he was concerned, basically, Doc, that the numbers didn't seem to add up. Now, what I don't know what David's um, looking at specifically. It's hard to kind of recreate this because points in time uh, on a Comsec screen, you can't kind of grab or look at. What I reckon David's possibly done is looked at the pre-market price, the indicative price that sometimes ComSec and other brokers show. So I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and explain this one, mate, and you can jump in and tell me where I'm wrong and, and help our listeners. But broadly speaking, David is absolutely right in his assumption, although he, think, he thought he was wrong, but he's not. Um, the, 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 the share price change you see reported on the news, on ComSec, anywhere else, is the change versus the last close price. So, yesterday, if you, well, we'll talk about this on Sunday, so it's a bad example. But tomorrow morning on Monday, when you see the share, Telstra shares up 1%, hopefully they're up because I own them, but uh, up 1%, it'll be 1% versus Friday night's close price at about 4.30 in the afternoon when there's price of lockdown. So, let's say it closes at three bucks. It's not going to, but it just makes my maths easier. Uh, it'll be 303 if it's up 1% on Monday. And that's exactly how it works, David. So, you were right in the first place. In the meantime, though, sometimes before the market, they the ComSec and others show an indicative price. And what it basically does is it puts together all of the limit orders that have been placed on its system. And it's saying, okay, look, before the market opens, I've got all these people who are looking to buy at this price, all these people who are looking to sell at this price. And if that happens, then indicatively the price will probably open up or down. And that's reported on a different line on ComSec. Now you may not be talking about that, David, for all I know, for all I know but my guess is that might be what you're referring to. And that, if that's the case, it's an indicative pre-market price, just based on what ComSec thinks might happen if those orders that it already has in its system, ready for 10 o'clock in the morning, get executed the way they otherwise would go through. Um, but again, that's, that's all that happens. And then basically once shares actually start trading, the price you see is literally just the last price that shares changed hands, whether that was sometimes on the day of, sometimes, by the way, shares don't trade for a while in the morning if it's a thinly traded stock. We're not talking about Telstra here, of course, but if it was, I don't know, uh, Doc and Scott's Shoe Emporium and uh, and we only, you know, we trade a couple of times a day, it can be you know, 11, 11.30 in the morning before the first trade is placed. But generally speaking, the price you'll see on the screen is the last traded price, whether that was today or Friday, in the, or tomorrow or Friday in this case, because we're doing this on a Sunday. Uh, but you'll also see the, the change will be between the last traded price and the previous market's close, in this case again, it will be Friday afternoon's close. Doc, any more thoughts on that one, mate? You know, nothing.
1: Can I kind of digress and talk about something just briefly? <laughs>
0: <laughs> tangents. We don't do tangents on this podcast. <laughs> we
1: don't. Okay. So this is just for our listeners. Yeah, okay, We were it. talking about uh, right. you know GameStop, which has yes. a GME code. There is another, unfortunately, unfortunately another company oh, with a GME no. code on the ASX. That's up no. 40% today. So You're kidding. I am not kidding you. <laughs> oh,
0: man. This, can like, this ma- is Can you bizarre. imagine they actually end up with these oh. shares of this company? That, oh, man. <laughs> what is, what is the, I'm going to have to look this up now. GME it's, Resources. It's, it's oh. GME Resources Limited. These so guys have been hitting the backside please. by a rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> ah,
1: but, ah. but please don't buy... <laughs> <laughs> Either way, just, you know, I don't know anything about Jamie resources, but just don't oh, play GameStop. Yeah, Game no, Stock, be careful. Uh, GameStop. <laughs> God. Okay, anyways, this is a small aside. Let's go like about
0: I like that, mate. <laughs> Funnily enough, actually, just a really quick aside to your aside is um, we've recommended and I own shares in a company called Corporate Travel Management. And, of course, the company's acronym is CTM. Uh, but CTM I think on the ASX is Centaur Minerals or something rather than Corporate Travel Management which is CTD uh, sometimes two companies with, uh, with with similar names end up having to have different codes just by definition um, and I, I have occasionally heard of a, a member of ours buying the wrong shares so be care always check both the the uh, ticker and the exchange before you place your trades it could be, uh, be very ugly otherwise tick, ticker exchange and
1: name name is important you're ultimately yeah. buying a company which has a name not some bloody ticker
0: Man, and mate, I've, got a, I've got a bone to pick with our friends at ShareSite. I like ShareSite. I use ShareSite. I pay for ShareSite. Except Stephen emailed us and said, hey, these guys have missed the big one, the TMF podcast with Scott and Doc. Maybe you should set them straight. Now, Stephen included an email uh, attachment. They had the top 50 finance and investing podcasts. Apparently, for some unknown reason, they don't include Motley Fool Money. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't use ShareSite as a result. I'm not saying you should definitely email them and suggest that they've missed the best podcast in the country. But if you if you were inclined, feel free to let them know they've missed the very best podcast in Australia because I don't know how they could possibly find 50 that were even even close to as good as ours, let alone better, Doc. What's going on?
1: Oh, I don't know. Like, I mean, how could this happen is the it's only it's thing a, I can It's
0: a travesty, mate. There is no... Yeah. Gra- this, this, this GameStop stuff, that is small bickies compared to the misleading nature of Share Sites podcast blog by... <laughs> Daring to suggest <laughs> we're not the top fifty. There is something. There is something funny going on here. When I get to the bottom of it, someone will pay. Uh, uh, that, or my appear, my feelings just hurt. I'm not entirely sure. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, here's a question. <laughs> here's a question from. I don't know if we've given the name, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna mention the email address. All right. Here we go. Huge thanks to both of you for producing an easy to understand, informative and entertaining show. Thank you. Uh, it's Archie, actually. Archie was the name. I just scrolled down a little bit. A special thanks to Scott oh, thank you, for showing a lot of empathy in his email newsletters at the height of the market crash last year. That was exactly what was needed for retail investors like me to stay the course. Well, thank you. That's, that's really gratifying. Thank you. I appreciate it. My question is about Kogan. I was fascinated to learn in one of your past episodes about the background of Meyer and David Jones and department stores in general and how they were trendy and relevant in a not so globalized world. Andy says how they stopped being that once the global brands were able to set up shops and bring fast and cheaper fashion and goods to more or less every suburb in the cities. And you're right, that's a really, it is a kind of cool history lesson there. Recently, he says, I was looking to buy a shoe and was comparing a particular model at Kogan and the shoe brand's websites. While the price and shipping cost was exactly the same, the brand's website was able to give me the more description and specification of the shoe and other relevant details. The one size fits all generic website of Kogan couldn't give that info. I ended up buying the shoe from the brand's website. chew that hurts. I own Kogan shares. That hurts me deeply. Uh, anyway, he says, which brings me to the question. COVID has accelerated the move online of many retailers and brands. Platforms such as Shopify and Etsy are making it easy for retailers to establish an online presence cost-effectively. Shipping and last-mile delivery are also being made faster and cheaper by Uber and others, essentially nullifying the first mover advantage of Kogan. Niche and specialist uh, online retailers such as Chewy.com, Wayfair in the US, and to some extent Templar Webster are chipping away at the total market of all in one retailers like Kogan. So, will Kogan go the way of Maya and Target in the future? Interested to hear your thoughts on this. Regards are Chew. I like that. That's a really good question. Doc, I own Kogan Share, so I'm probably going to be, I'll try and be unbiased, but I can't ever claim to be. So, You're you're on a Kogan shareholder. What do you reckon, mate? Is this, is Kogan the next stop on the way to further diversification or do the one size fits all the the get it all in the one place retailers like Kogan or Amazon or something else have a role to play in the future?
1: First of all, this is a brilliant question. I love it when people think like this. This is great. This is absolutely beautiful way to think. Um, So here's what I think about this. First of all, I'll just make one small correction. I would not call Kogan a first mover, right? I mean, Kogan is actually a late mover in many ways because, I mean, online retail uh, has been going on for like now ten years, right? So it's a a late mover in that sense. The the thing, and he's absolutely right to say that, you know, basically platforms uh, have made it really easy to go online. And there's a long tail of online retailers. If you think about what's happening via things like, you know, these these platforms, then you have a long tail of retailers that you can access through various platforms. Um, And and he's absolutely right that there's, you know, the ease of delivery, the ease of going online, the ease of hosting, the ease of payments. There's Mm -hmm. basically anybody can be online. And in fact, if a business is not online, they're actually just basically committing suicide uh, themselves. There's no reason not to be. So I think this, all those things are absolutely correct. Um, so I, I think a couple of ways to think about this. One is there's always going to be people and companies that are not going to be actually going online. Right? At least that's how I think. Mm-hmm. Or are going to be slow to go online. So there's going to be share taken on that front by Kogan and others, Temple and Webster, and whatever not you know think of and, and and all the other small ones that have decided to go online. and That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that should allow companies like Kogan and Templeton Webster to take share from those people who are slow to move. Uh, I do think he's right to think about the total upside. That's I think that's a very valid way to think about it, is that the total upside now is in many ways, if this was 10 years ago versus now, I think uh, is different because you're, in, in many ways, your pie is gonna be divided. But at the same time, you also have to think that a lot, how much of the other people's parts, I think it's how much share you're gonna steal and how much the market is gonna grow is the real question. Yeah. So that's the, I think it's a very valid question uh, to think about, there's, there's more competition now, uh, than there was in the past. I think that's, that's really valid. I think on the other hand, though, I mean, you have to think about comparing Kogan, like for like comparison, right? I mean, Kogan is a pretty capital-like model, if you think about it, from a retailer's point of view, it's a capital-like model, right? It doesn't have store footprint. It has, yes, it has distribution centers and stuff that it has to pay for. It doesn't have to pay for stores. It doesn't have that kind of employee footprint. Uh, it can use other things. So it's got a pretty lightweight model. It's profitable already, or generates cash at least, is it's profitable. Um, so it can continue growing. So I think, you know, I don't think it's a negative in any way. Uh, but yeah, it's a good good question to think about the, like the total addressable market. I think that that is a valid point. But again, I think, you know, this doesn't have to be a winner's take all market. That's my bottom line. Is. it doesn't have to be a winner's, winner takes all market. It's not that it, there's going to be a single winner. There's not even going to be a couple of winners. There will be multiple yeah. winners in this market. I think the dynamics is going to be different than it was. Like, it's not that, I, okay, my last comment, I think you should not buy Kogan thinking it's going to be Amazon-like. It's not going to be Amazon-like because I think the era and time are different. I think that, that comment I think is spot on. That doesn't mean it's not a good investment, right? So those are again two completely different things. And uh, you remember, Coca is profitable at this stage versus you know similar stage business. Amazon was not profitable, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the the way I think about it. So it's a brilliant question, lovely.
0: Agree, perfect. Um, I'm going to add just a, another quick thought. You've, you've covered it beautifully, Doc. Um, I what I think I would add to Archie's observation about the Myron DJ's department stores thing is my view is that while the others have set up new stores, it's because specifically the Westfields of the world became the new David Jones or Meyer. They became the department store, right? So once upon a time, you went to, I vividly remember as a kid going to Broadway in Sydney, and there was a Grace Brothers, it was then called, uh, and it was the place you went to get all of the labels in one place because shopping centers didn't really exist in any meaningful way. They kind of started in the 60s, so they're on the way, but they didn't really exist in, in, a, large, in a large sense. Once you get the, shop, the shopping mall, the shopping center, They're effectively just large department stores. And so Meyer and DJ struggled specifically because someone else said, hang on, we can offer more, bigger, better, all under one roof. It's a bigger roof and there's food and there's entertainment and there's all that stuff. So basically kind of, you know, Westfield just did a, a, you know, a department store on steroids is is the shopping center. And so to some degree that hurt the department store. I think to some degree, the story is also true of Kogan in exactly the same way because um, to my mind, if you want a, a particular shoe, let's call it... Let's say it was Nike. I don't know what shoe it was. Let's say it was Nike. You can absolutely go to Nike's website and buy it. But if you want a sports shoe and you're not sure what you want, you'll probably go to Kogan and look for it. Or if you want a TV, if you want a Samsung 65-inch with this model number or whatever, you might go and find the best place to buy it. And, and you need to be the cheapest price, by the way, if, you, if you're... And it sounds like Kogan was, if you want the sale. But if you're looking to buy a television or a, a phone... Um, going just to the retailer's website or just to the wholesale or the manufacturer's website or the brand owner's website you have to have already made that decision. So there's always have people go between Kogan and Apple's website, Kogan and Nike's website, Kogan and Samsung's website I suppose. Um, but broadly it that they are the shopping center, the shopping mall, the, the department store whatever whatever version you want to use whatever analogy um in, which, which you know you could always have gone to I don't know the Tiffany's store in town in the middle of the city rather than go to the jewellery counter at, at DJ's or the jewellery shop at the Westfield so I think to some degree to your point Doc it won't be winner takes all different types of shopping occasions shopping missions as the as the boffins call it uh, will, will have different things and they'll absolutely coexist I completely agree alright next question Oh, oh no, so, uh, uh,
1: Sorry, so uh, I actually did not answer the question. the direct question uh, <laughs> he asked, which is no, I don't think uh, Kogan is going the Meyer or uh, or the DJs way. So uh, I, I I thought I I, 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 I let me make it explicit. Uh, even though I talked about terminals, uh, so you know, I was just trying to give give my color. But I, yeah, it's I think it's get okay, different models. Although those two things are completely different models. So
0: nice. uh,
1: sorry, let's.
0: Thank continue. you, buddy. No, appreciate it. appreciate. It. Question from James. Hi there. I'm an EO, extreme opportunities, and SA, share advisor subscriber, our services mate, so thank you, James, with a question for the podcast. I bought an EO recommendation late March. It was points bet. Sorry to give the good news away, Doc, but uh, our listeners will will appreciate I'm sure you'll appreciate when I read the rest of the line, which is, and I'm up over 580% on this stock alone. Thanks, EO. Nice work, Doc. My question relates to some options I was issued when I took up the share placement last year. Now, this email was sent... Uh, a week ago, so the the price are out of touch, but we'll go with the concept. The strike price for these options is $13, apparently, and the shares are currently around $14.80. So that would say that the, the, the shares are currently trading over dollar eighty, higher than the current share price, uh, sorry, than the strike price. The thing I can't wrap my head around, he says, is my brokerage is telling me that my options are currently trading at $3.56. Shouldn't they ever only trade at the difference between the buy price and the current price? How are they selling for almost double? All right, Doc, I don't know the answer to this one, you tell me. (laughs) This is is, is relatively
1: easy. So options are are derivative instruments, right? So if you have a call option, it gives you the right to buy the particular underlyings, in this particular case, points bets, at whatever whatever the strike price is $12, right? Yep. Um, so let's say that you know the strike price is twelve dollars. Basically, says you can effectively buy it at twelve dollars now, yep. um, and and the shares might be at thirteen dollars. In, in in which case, you know you actually like you know you basically have like a one dollar difference, right? Yep. Now the thing is that options also have an expiry date, right? Yep. And because these options expire in the future, what it effectively is saying is there's what's called time value because what we don't know is. What if the shares are going to be twenty dollars in three years' time, and, and the options expire in three years' time, right? So the options market basically is including some some modelling that says, well, you know, there's because there's some time left, anything can happen. You okay. know, the stock could dip, the stock could go up, and for that reason, they're going to ask you to pay a little bit more <laughs> in this particular case.
0: So, so, so the, all, the options, options are betting the price will go up even further, and they're bank, they're, they're factoring some of that in the current price. No, that,
1: well, not, right? no, no, no. Yeah, it's sort of right, but they're not betting that it's going to go up a lot, right? Because if it was sure. betting it will go up a lot, if like if that says 12, strike price is 12, and if the options market thought that it was going to go to 20, yep. then 20 minus 12 should be baked in into the options price. The options price right. should really reflect what the options market thinks at this time, the future price of this, on right. a probabilistically distributed way, right? Of course, now, A couple of caveats here. This is what the options market thinks for, and the options market, not just as a whole, the options market in this particular company, which may be thinly traded, and therefore it might not mean anything. (laughs) So uh, there's that reflection built into it, right? So it's not a very liquid market and things like that. So basically, it's called time value. You're paying up some time value because there's some time left for the uh, for the end date of the call.
0: Nice, ah, so there you go, and, and and one one of the two will be right, right. So if if the shares don't gain, the, the options holders will lose money. Um, if the yes. shares go up, the options because it's an option, it, it's a not only a derivative instrument, it's kind of leverage gain, right? Because if you're paying a dollar eighty to get a, a bigger gain, there's also some upside leverage there. So they operate just different on a different plane, a different kind of um, uh, the lines on a different angle to to the actual shares themselves, right? bigger bigger downside, bigger upside. In in percentage terms. Yeah, absolutely right. Cool. Thanks, James. Really good question. Um, He said another one, mate. He says, another question I have is around exercising these options and then selling the shares, or am I better off just selling these options directly? What are the pros and cons? So as you say, Doc, in in theory, when the market's efficient, and isn't often or always, as we know from GameStop on Friday, but when it is, um, in theory, they should be kind of the same thing, right? If if the pricing is done correctly then selling the options or converting and then selling the shares should be the same outcome at some future point. Do you have a, a general view on what not, not, we won't tell James what he should do or even necessarily in this case points bet, though feel free to. But generally speaking, do you think we sh- our listeners should just sell the options at a, at a reasonable price or exercise by the shares and then sell the shares?
1: Well, like I mean, the thing, uh, my, I don't have a good, again, my rule of thumb, like, I actually don't like it when when companies actually force you to buy options because you're being like forced to buy part of a transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were if I was buying options myself, so I do buy sometimes call options. So what I tend to do is I I think of them as 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 a share replacement or a stock replacement, right? right. So if, if the shares are trading at hundred dollars, instead of forking out hundred times you know one hundred ten thousand dollars, I could buy exposure to that company and I can pick a lower strike price of say fifty dollars and I might actually land up paying like $55 per exposure to 100 shares mm-hmm. and that sort of prevents that helps that saves me from downside risk as well mm-hmm. because I've picked a lower strike price um, in this case I really don't have a, like I mean I think your best course of action really is to just hold on uh, till the ex- expiration right because this is a growth company it's growing pretty quickly. If it keeps executing, then there's a good chance that you know the share price is meaningfully higher. If the share price is meaningfully higher, then at that point you can decide whether you want to take the shares at that price or just sell sell your calls in the market for the difference, right? Because at the closer to the as as you get closer and closer to the expiration, that's when it doesn't have any time value. It basically, will have you know intrinsic value, which is going to be share price minus the option strike price, yeah. right? So that's what I think I would do. But again, this is really hard because this is you know you have to if you again if you need the money and you want you you know then you can get rid of it you're gonna get like whatever that like in dollar or something per option that you hold and probably hold options and in increments of hundred so you you get something back um, yeah but again there's no perfect answer for this unfortunately
0: nice thank you mate um, yeah I, I I see no I see no value in converting and selling. Rather than convert, just selling the options. If the markets reasonably efficient, you should be getting similar value for both trades. Um, if you want to hold the shares, obviously a different thing. Or if you want to, do, you know, if, if you aim to hold them for a longer term, that's a different question. I, w- I would have thought. But again, I, as you say, doctor, there's, no, there's no perfect answer. So that's um, a range of a range of thoughts, a range of options you have to uh, think about how you might want to use that use that money. Value stocks. Markets. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's go to Alex. Alex, hi, Scott and Doc. I love the pod and hearing your insights. Thank you, Alex. I'm a subscriber to the Dividend Investor Service. Capably run by our our mate, Ed Vestley. Well done. I also invest in Solpats or Washington H. Solpattinson. I own shares for the record. So let me disclose that up front. Recently, Solpats have launched a convertible note offering. What are the pros and cons of convertible note offerings? Perhaps it has to do with your investment horizon, financial situation, life stage and risk tolerance, Alex asks. Would convertible notes be worthwhile or would I be better off spending my money on more dividend and or growth stocks? Foolishly yours, Alex. Great question, Alex. Doc, you and I discussed this uh, in, our, in our group Slack channel only a few days ago, maybe it was late last week, um, in terms of SolPATS offering. I'm going to go through the detail of it, and you can give your thoughts, and I'll I'll wrap up with mine. So, SolPATS is going to, or has raised $225 million. The interest, so that, and it's a convertible note. What that means is they pay interest, it's a loan, and then the loan holder has the option of converting that loan into shares or being repaid. So in that circumstance, it's like saying if I, if I I'll, I'll lend you a hundred bucks, stock and in five years' time you give me the hundred bucks back, or I can take a hundred dollars worth of shares that you might own. For example, it's an imperfect example because this is a company, not an individual investor, but the same kind of idea. You either get the money back, or you get you can option you can choose. Sorry, the option of having shares in the company instead. And Solpats is raising it at get this zero point six percent per annum. So they've basically written a written a, you know or get someone else to write alone to give them $225 million with an interest rate of 0.6%. That's pretty good. At the end of that term though, either they've got to have the $225 million and give it back to the people or those people who wrote the loan get to take $225 million worth of Solpats shares. Now, there is a, a strike price difference. I don't think we'll get to that in a whole lot of detail, but effectively that's the option. So for Solpats, they get a lower interest rate than you would have got almost anywhere else, but shareholders might have to give up some upside in the company's share price because... Sollpats will issue more shares to make this happen, which dilutes the rest of us who own shares. Now, Doc, firstly, is that a reasonable summary? And secondly, what do you reckon the pros and cons are?
1: I think that's a very reasonable summary. Um, I I mean, you've described the pros and cons really. Like, I mean, the the pro is that you're, you're getting money at a very low interest rate. The con really is that you're going to dilute if the share price is materially higher. So, I mean, in many ways the, the funny thing could be that you know this is a five year let's say this is a five year um, hybrid then or convert then if the share price goes nowhere for five years mm-hmm. <laughs> it actually may work out and then after in the sixth, seventh, eighth year actually goes yeah, up right. <laughs> then it'll work out well like then it works out really in, in, in the favor of uh, of investors of course and that at the fifth year then um, then Solpats has to pay back in cash, right? So there's, you'll have to have the cash to pay back the debt at that point in time. So assuming they have the cash, then that's okay. If they don't have the cash, they'll have to refinance or do another convert at that point. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I mean, there's a, there's a, like the, like, I think the only thing I'll say is the 25% above current share price, that's a pretty low mm-hmm. threshold. Like, I mean, right. basically, if the share price goes up only 25 percent in and if that's what the management i mean that's a very low ball typically mm-hmm. i've seen this sort of deal this is very common in the in the american market but the share price at which it will convert is typically at least a double or more of where it is uh today so mm-hmm. i mean the 25 percent higher stood out to me mm-hmm. and maybe the 25 percent higher was um was probably the requirement to get that low a yeah, finance right. rate. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's, it's no, um, there's no free lunch, right?
1: Yeah, there's no free lunch, right? So because otherwise you might, you know, I would have expected the sole paths would probably be getting money at 2%, 2.5%. But I mean, the fact that they're getting it pretty much close to zero comes with a cost. And in this particular case, it comes with cost of equity. So, um, yeah, that's that. I mean, it all depends on what you do with the money, right? Really. Like, I mean, if you do something really, you know, great with the money, then you know, that's it's a small dilution to take, right? And the, the shares go up tenfold, nobody's going to complain about, you know, yeah, the dilution. If the shares go up fivefold, nobody's going to complain yeah. about the dilution. But if the shares go up only 30%, people are going to complain about dilution at that point. Yeah. <laughs> so that's
0: that. Nice one, mate. I like that. Look, this is, this is uh, the, the loan is about 3% of the company's value for, for what it's worth. So it's not a huge impost of dilution either way, even if it's fully converted. Uh, as Doc says, it's a twenty five percent increase. So you, they have to the share price has got for the company to, or the, the 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 lenders to want to convert to make it worth their while. You wouldn't convert otherwise because there is no point paying more than the, the then current market price. So the lender is betting they get a little bit of money to wait and they get a, a cheap entry price into the shares. So it's kind of a, it's an options trade of sorts, right? You get to uh, you, you get to you know get some sort of money. Uh, in the meantime, a very, very small interest rate in the meantime and, and a potentially big-ish upside but obviously no guarantee of the upside um, and in the worst case scenario for the lender, the best they're going to get is 0.6% a year for five years and then get their money back which is a reasonably rubbish outcome. Of course, if the share price doubles in the meantime, they get a really cheap entry price because um, they're going to buy it, you know, 25% increases dox it on the current price, the shares by then are double and so you get to buy at a really cheap discount and you don't have to exercise that until the last minute so you know whether or not you're going to get some value. So the... The pros and cons depend on who you are, right? We talk. We can talk about it from the company's perspective, from from an investor's perspective. Do you want to do that? Well, you kind of. I don't love convertibles. I don't. It's a bit the same as um, uh, what do they call those things? The what do the banks offer those convert um, hybrid notes? You kind of you know convertibles. You're getting some upside potentially. Uh, and you're not getting a massive amount of downside. If the company doesn't go broke, you at least get your face value of your loan back. So I guess there's some value there in downside protection. The worst you can do is get your money back. Um, so that that's, again, I'm sure they don't go broke. The worst is absolutely the company goes broke. You don't get your money back. But for something coming like Salt Pats, the worst you're reasonably going to do is get your money back. So that's a pretty good downside protection. You do get some upside potential if the shares are higher because you get to buy in five years' time. At a, at a price below the then current share price, which is a guaranteed upside if it happens. So you kind of, they're kind of nice and, and you get something paid in the meantime, when cash rates are zero, you're getting 0.6. So it's something. I, I've i got to say though, to your point doc about the gains, um, you really only want to do this if you desperately want to protect your downside or you think you're going to get big upside in the share price uh, and, and make it worthwhile. Equally from Sol Pat's perspective, you're only going to do this at that deal. And as you say, it's a trade-off between the rate, interest rate and the conversion. Uh, you're only going to do it if you think uh, that uh, the money is going to be better than what you've got now. It is a lower cost of debt than their current debt. So they're benefiting from some degree by rolling over some debt to a lower price. But again, as current investors, I'm a, a shareholder, um, I, my, my ownership is diluted if they do convert at that future point and the strike price is too low, as, as Doc says. If it's not 50% or 100% higher than now, um, that's a tough one. I will say, Doc, for what it's worth, I don't think it's super unreasonable as a as a mix Given SolPat's not a hyper growth business, I mean, no, no one's going to lend SolPat's money. On a conversion, if they double in five years, because the chance of Solpat's business doubling in five years is not—you know—it's it, not the slam dunk. I mean, it may do, it may happen, which would be great for me as a shareholder. Um, but I don't know too many lenders who are going to lend money on that assumption, given it's a reasonably conservative conglomerate. Um, It's—you know—if you're if you only on Apple or Tesla, you might be happy to make that bet. Um, I wouldn't—I wouldn't expect worse to be able to do that deal either. By the way, get a double in five years, it's just not going to happen unless strange things happen. Um, if the shares are overvalued, by the way, this is a great deal for Solpat. So I, I have to say part of me did think hang on if they're so keen to do this deal give them a conversion at a 25 percent premium to the current price is that saying the current management think that shares are maybe overvalued uh and i it's a question mark i don't really have an answer to but it does it did exercise my brain uh, so it's only right that i mention it here for full disclosure I'm, I'm not too worried about it i'm not selling my shares i'm not changing anything as i said it's three and a half percent of the current market value so even if it is diluted entirely it's it's, it's not immaterial material, and I shouldn't I shouldn't wave it away. So that's not important. But it's not going to have a, a material impact on my or the company's returns moving forward. and If they get a cheaper cost of debt to do it, I, I can't get worked up either way. Particularly, but I have to say, I'd much rather be a shareholder than uh, than hold those convertible notes. How about you, mate?
1: Oh, I think so. Uh, um, yeah, the convertible. I mean, the convertible notes. I mean, in 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 the worst case, basically, don't return you anything, right? Yes, <laughs> so, you get
0: point six and then your money back. Yeah.
1: yeah. The, you're getting money back, so I mean that's, I mean that's, I mean it's low downside, but the upside yes. is also it's capped by time as well, right? I mean, yeah, correct, correct. they have to deliver within a certain time, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's,
0: it's, it's a bet I wouldn't make, but but other people are prepared to. And you know, hey, I mean, yeah, you know, if I, I guess if I could put money down and, and get a, you know an upside in five years' time, it's worth something. But I'd happily buy the shares now at the current price, not worry about the twenty-five percent upside, then get the full upside from now if I bought the shares. So I, I do that, yeah. but each to their own. Uh, worth saying, by the way, too, in the meantime, Solpats' yield is probably two-odd percent. So buying the shares would give you a, a 4X return on the income over the next five years in the meantime, even before you started. So I don't think it's a terrible deal for Solpats. I don't think it's – it's not a great deal for the lenders. But if you're in the debt market, you're a different type of investor for different reasons. And capital protection is probably a, a reasonably important component of your life uh, in a way that I'm not as, as, you know, fixated on. All right, next one comes from David. I like this one. You'll like this too, Doc. Discot and Doc, love your work, gentlemen. Thank you, David. I've noticed one of the secret catalysts that can cause an inflection point to be reached for a software company in recent times has been when a company transitions from perpetual licensing to a SaaS model of recurring monthly or yearly fees. I'm gonna stop right here, Doc. Talk to us about perpetual licensing versus SaaS.
1: Yeah, so perpetual licensing as the, perpetual means forever and license means, well, license is the right. So, it basically says you have the right to use the software that's given to you in its current form forever. Sometimes there's what's called an annual maintenance attached to that. What that basically means is that, well, whenever that annual maintenance comes up, you can expect to get some mods, upgrades, and things like that on some cycle, and typically an annual cycle. So, yeah, you buy a piece of software, use that piece of software forever uh, for a paid price. So, that's perpetual license. Okay.
0: Great, thank you. And SaaS, obviously, hopefully our listeners know, but it is the opposite, not the opposite of that, but it's a different way of doing it where you don't pay anything upfront, but you pay a usage fee on a regular basis, right?
1: Yeah, so SaaS is basically software as a service, which is basically a clever way of saying that we give you the license to use a particular software on an ongoing basis and for... uh, for a fee, which could be, you know, some companies will charge you yearly in advance, some will charge you monthly in advance, some will charge you quarterly in advance. But the other thing that you get with that is you keep using the software as long, you can use the software as long as you pay for it. Mm -hmm. And in return for that, what you get is you get pretty much the, the latest version of the software. You always have the latest version, the latest and the greatest and all the new features and things like that. Um, the world has mo- used to be mostly perpetual licenses and has slowly but steadily moved away from perpetual licenses to, uh, you know, these this regular SaaS-style recurring revenue. It's recurring because, you know, it's recurring in the sense that you have to keep paying for using it versus paying it once for using it forever, and that's where the recurring comes from. Uh, and the world has sort of moved away from that to this side.
0: It's funny too. So SaaS is better for businesses that are offering it because they get regular amounts of income. It's not lumpy. Um, it tends to be an easier sell to their customers. From, from a customer perspective, I've certainly been in businesses where someone says, hey, can you pay hundred grand upfront for all this software to be installed? And the CFO normally says, no, I'm not going to make that capital expenditure because it's seen as a one-off cost. Uh, but if you have a, a software as a service option, it's a, what they call it, operating expenditure. And CFOs take a different view. And this is funny because there's no real reason for it, but it seems to work and, and SaaS companies have exploited this. I don't mean that in a negative way. But a CFO is going to say, yeah, you can pay 10,000 bucks a year, no worries. But if you want to pay 100 grand up front, that's a whole big problem. Uh, now you might pay that 10 grand a year for the next 25 years, in which case you've well and truly overpaid or, or more than paid for the upfront cost. But uh, for, for budgeting, for cash flow purposes, for a whole lot of other reasons, um, SaaS is great for the SaaS company, but also for the customer. Now, here's, here's the rest of David's question. The, fund, uh, the fundamentals take a hit, he says, as this process runs. And it's true, right? So instead of paying the 100 grand up front, if I'm the software company, I get 100 grand, I book 100 grand revenue, I'm a genius. But if I go SaaS instead, well, I only get 10 grand for that first year. And so my revenue is falling by 90% on that particular customer. These are arbitrary numbers. That, the numbers, you know, the, the proportions can be different for different companies, but just work with it. Um, so you know, at this stage, it's like, hang on, that company just had a 90% fall in, in revenue. That's terrible. And the costs are the same, so the profit looks lower. All that stuff happens. So he's, that, that's where the fundamentals take a hit, as David says, as this process runs. Back to his question. Uh, but then the company emerges as a winner as the process completes. RPM Global is one example, he says, and maybe Altium is another. Now, David's a bit uh, bullish here. I, David, I don't mind you for asking. We won't uh, we'll probably answer this in full, but let's go with it. Can you give us a list of all the companies that you can think of that are presently making this transition? They may be undervalued on a short-term basis, but should reap growth advantages as they complete the process. Do you think the market has already noticed this phenomenon and moved to eliminate this potential advantage? Fool on, gents, David. Now, David's dead right, Doc. RPM Global is a company that we've recommended at Share Advisor. Have you guys recommended it? Yeah, I think you might have. There you go. So you've picked you've picked it nicely, David. Uh, and I won't speak for you, doctor. Feel free to. From our perspective at ShareAdvisor, that is exactly uh, one of the key things we think is going on here. The company I think is undervalued. Um, myself and Andrew Leggett on the basis of that transition continuing to roll out. That's a decent way through it. Um, but that that was a very significant part of the uh, of the investment case was exactly that the companies are being valued currently on an old perpetual licensing business, but the SaaS stuff isn't being underappreciated by the market. Now, as David said, it's not exactly a surprise anymore. Plenty of businesses are doing or have done this. RPM is one such business. He said Altium is another I think Altium is pretty much all the way through that, Doc, I would say. It is a recommendation of mine at multi full million dollar portfolio, so for full disclosure. But I kind of think it's kind of finished that. It's now just in general growth mode as a SaaS business. Do you have a different perspective on Altium?
1: Yeah, so slight I don't think you're incorrect. Yeah. Uh, I think you've described it correctly. I think the thing with Altium that is, so there are two components to this transition of licenses, mm-hmm. right? So Altium also used to do perpetual licenses then there's this phenomenon when you do perpetual license so you're basically giving people software to have at one go that's a much easier fodder uh, for the, for, um, uh, for licensing theft and illegal mm-hmm. software so i think what 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 he's talking about here is there is you know many software companies that used to be perpetual license givers or you know uh, distributors have a large pool of users who have outdated software or using software uh, sort of legally without paying for it there's an option to actually try to transfer over them to the modern generation software and to bring them over to the SaaS side so this is Mm -hmm. uh, there's a meaningful chunk of users in North America in China and other parts of the world where Altium could actually make that happen um and that's part of their push so i think that's what he's and then that should all add to the sas revenue so that's a meaningful thing to consider um yeah
0: so Nice, mate. I
1: don't have anything else to add to this. Now David wants to
0: know: Can we can we give me a list of all the companies that are making this transition? i have got to say I don't have any. I'm, I'm not being sneaky. I don't I don't really have a, a list handy of companies that I think are in the middle of this. I we we found RPM and grabbed that one uh, about six months ago. I think it was. We've done okay with that. It's not certainly not through the roof yet, so it's still a buy for us at share advisor. Um, but David may well own it, given he mentioned it. I can't think of any any. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not suggesting there aren't any. I just haven't got any that come to mind that meet that criteria. Others in that kind of space going from. Uh, perpetual to to SaaS. There's plenty of new SaaS companies that are SaaS all the way from scratch. Um, anything else that comes to mind for you that kind of meet that meet that uh, criteria?
1: Yeah, nothing, nothing really comes to mind. Again, the key thing to remember is that there aren't that many old, uh, well-established yeah, so- p- software companies on the ASX, that's right? True. That's so true. there are not there's that, not that much opportunity for transformation. Yeah. And then the stuff that we have seen are smaller companies listing lately, which are mostly SaaS resource, uh, by birth. Yeah. Right, so there isn't that. I mean, you know, again, RPM Global is a specialized special case because it's a mining mm-hmm. software, which um, you know, probably Integrated was a lot Research of the is probably the
0: only other one I, I think I've made that. I think it's pretty much done now. It was we recommended it back in twenty eleven, and I think it's Share Advisor. Um, my predecessor Dean recommended it when uh, when we started that service. I, I'm pretty sure that's pretty much through that through that curve as well. So yeah, they're coming up. Think, I think yeah. of it's old enough to be in that space.
1: Yeah, I I don't I don't know technology one that well. Maybe technology one has got some sort of transition going on, but again, um, yeah. But, but yeah, this is not. It's I think this sort of trend has mostly played out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the other thing is that the market sometimes doesn't appropriately value uh, assess companies, right? I mean, global Again, there is there's a bit of a dislocation in valuation. One can think about.
0: Yeah. Awesome, thank you, buddy. Um, really big question. We'll probably finish this one, doc, because we were we were a little bit. Uh, we took a few liberties with Friday's podcast, so we'll keep this on a bit. I want say shorter, just not not as long as that one. Uh, let's go with question from David. I, I like this. So I oh, burn it. Sorry, burn it, burn it. Sorry, burn it. Here we go. Hello, Scott and Doc, or should it be El Presidente and King Doc? I think I'm okay with that. You okay with that? I am fine with that. <laughs> I'm a subscriber to Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities stock advisor in the USA and rule breakers and I try to read as much motley full content and listen to as many podcasts as possible with you guys being my numero uno favorite podcast thank you mate he says yes it's 11t stars from me do we have a, is 11t an option on iTunes yet have you fixed that with Tim
1: I am going to talk to him right after this uh, hey, with the, with all,
0: with, all the earn, with all the earnings growth, sure they can afford to add 11 T stars as an option for their, for their podcast rating is all I'm saying. Uh,
1: all right. I, I think it makes sense. <laughs> I'll call him using my new iPhone on my new <laughs> I, AirPods and then maybe he'll listen to me.
0: Nice. All right, here we go. I have a question he says about restarting my super portfolio again once I move it from an industry fund to net wealth. And I've got a, an answer re-adding up. Here we go. I'm about to move my whole superannuation portfolio – worth six figures and built up over 25 years to net wealth and would appreciate your thoughts. I know your views are general in nature, not specific advice, et cetera. Thank you, that's true. Uh, letting you know I have a stomach for volatility. I like the next new shiny stock. I tend to buy in thirds up to my initial one to 3% stake in a business. I suffer from the endowment effect and I'm, receiving, reco- I'm a recovering double down value trap victim. I'm in this for the long term, initially 15 years or so until retirement and then until I die. My portfolio outside super has approximately 50 stocks, global in focus, mostly Motley Fool Australia and USA picks, and nearly all are spanking the ASX and the S&P since 2018. Hence my confidence in managing, uh, moving to manage my super myself. Now, you ask some questions, and I will say, Bernard, the more information you give us, by the way, in these podcast questions, the less we can help you ironically uh, because the, the, more, the more detailed your question, the closer it gets to personal advice because when we start considering all the components you put in, uh, ASIC starts to consider it personal advice. So we will do our best uh, to answer some of this question. He says, should I? And he gives us the options. Just eyes closed, replicate the portfolio outside super with a new super portfolio, or should I take the opportunity to trim the weeds even if I think some companies could still do well in the next five years, should I buy stocks up to my position limit, or use my usual thirds approach? Should I buy all on day one, going against Doc's suggestion to buy stocks at a similar rate? You accumulate the cash. Should I buy all new stocks in different companies with a different strategy, or insert your much better suggestion here? <laughs> so I'm gonna—I'll I'll start with one mate. Just with one quick thought, and then I will let you go, and I'll come back some thoughts. My first thought, Bernard, is actually one. Here's one option. And you you might you might like this, and that's okay. I would say consider not doing it at all. And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying consider don't doing it at all. Here's here's my here's my thinking. If you're in an industry fund right now, they possibly have the opportunity for you to buy stocks directly uh, or ETFs directly in that super fund, and that may be sufficient. It may not. May be sufficient to do what you want to do, and also keep your costs really low. My concern for some people. Um, ta- perhaps many people depending on your super balance is I don't want you to go from a low fee scenario to a higher fee scenario unless you have a high degree of confidence you can more than cover the increase in fees now if you can you think you can that's fine just be really mindful that with I won't say small balance a big balance six figures but depending on how much you're paying for the new platform I don't want any upside to be eaten up by that change to platforms so just as with all self-managed super options um if they work for you for your own reasons fantastic go for it i'm not talking about you particular burn i'm talking about everyone listening if super works self-managed super works for you go for it i have one doc has one they work for us but then we're in the trade um, but for many many people actually even most people keeping a super low cost industry fund and taking advantage of most super funds options to actually go and select or, or direct the stocks you buy within that fund actually might be better financially than doing it yourself. So I'm not saying don't do it yourself. I'm just saying consider not doing it yourself. But if you're going to, Doc, what should you do?
1: Well, you know, I like I really don't know. I, I, the problem is that there are too many questions there that I don't <laughs> exactly. know where to start from.
0: Oh, let, I don't let, me, know. Let, back. let me break it back. Yeah. yeah. If you're gonna if, if uh, you were gonna liquidate your super portfolio today, get rid of it all together, but you but you kept your personal portfolio as it is, and then you had to go and redeploy that money how would you let, let's say, let's say, I'll, I'll pick a number for the but not, not to say good. So, uh, Bernard says six figures. Let's say 100 grand. Let's say you got 100 grand portfolio, you sell it all, move it from one structure to another, and you find yourself in a couple of weeks' time with 100 grand cash in a super fund, uh, self managed in this case. How would you go about redeploying that cash? Would you, would you kind of buy individual positions? Would you buy in thirds? Would you replicate your current portfolio and just say, well, this is my best idea, so I'll do the same in and out of super? How, how would you think from scratch about setting up an SMSF with a, a lump sum of cash? Does that help? Or make well, it harder? yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: No, well, no that, that's, like, yeah, that, that's a very generic, like, well, yeah, my generic answer to that is that you always buy um, your best ideas, right? So you buy your best ideas, and I, I just like to buy slowly, so I, I wouldn't, deploy the entire funds at one fund at one go I would spread that fund over a period of time uh, you know some small period of time but I would uh, do that and I would just buy my best ideas right I mean basically I buy the best companies on a value profit upside adjusted basis that I can uh, while making sure the portfolio is diversified which is, in, in other words it's going to pretty much look like my portfolio as is like basically it look close to my portfolio so that's what I would do, but I don't, again, like there might be different ways for running your, like your super, right? I mean, you know, I do different things in my super than I do outside the super Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. there are legitimate reasons for that, which are personal circumstances based, which could, again, so I think that's the hard part. But if I was to build a portfolio, I'd build a portfolio that I like, basically. Mm -hmm. And 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 then my, 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 my last point would be, again, like if I already own stuff and I have to sell it did you have to pay capital gains on that? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of transaction movement that is happening, so I mean, it better be worthwhile to make yeah. the transaction yeah. movement. Is the, I guess, there must have to be some other, uh, you know, if it can't be done in the current setup or you can't, one can't buy what they want to buy, that's my only other thought. But
0: yeah. I like that, mate. I, I, I know, but like we're, we're stock guys, right? We're supposed to, yeah. Do your SMSF. Go on, you know, buy your own stocks. We'll give you the best ideas, and we'll do absolutely our level best to do that, and hopefully we'll, we'll continue you to beat mar- the market. So I have a high degree of confidence in our ability as a business to keep helping our members um, in really advantageous ways. But we're not, we're not the, you know, we get the luxury of not being so mercenary and and, and commercial that we have to give you bad advice to do it. Um, not that others would necessarily, but each to their own. Uh, but I will say, yeah, like just just be careful on that one. I like Doc. I would I would absolutely not let. So you are talking about the endowment effect. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a bit of anchoring there too, right? So one of the best things I've ever heard, and I, no one actually does it. We shouldn't because it costs you a fortune in taxes. Uh, is to always think about the portfolio you own as if you you had to cash out every night, and next morning the question would be: sh- Would you buy the same things given the choice? And that's the only thing you should be thinking about when it comes to this is literally, if you do it, exactly that, cashing everything out and saying, right, where do I put my money? And if you wouldn't buy the same portfolio tomorrow morning that you own today, that's okay. But then make some changes to reflect that. As Doc said, buy your best ideas, make sure you're holding your best ideas, adding to your best ideas. Um, now, obviously be careful of things like diversification and portfolio weightings and all that kind of stuff. So those, those matter and you really should be mindful of that. Uh, but just keep that in mind as you think about how to build up your, uh, your portfolio. I would absolutely do that. In terms of buying slowly, I think it probably makes the most sense. I've said before, the the mathematically rational decision is probably over time, on average, to commit the money as quickly as you can because the mark goes up over time. But it doesn't mean that each individual person will will strike exactly at the right. You know, if, if a million people did it. They'd, they'd benefit on aggregate by investing earlier rather than later because that's just the reality of the market. But some of those people will accidentally or you know unfortunately do it on the day before a market crash and then hate me. Um, others will do it the day before a market boom and love me. Um, the average will still be high, but you know realistically, it's kind of a psychological decision, far more than it is a, a purely rational economic one. The only rational choice would be if I knew that the average was going to go up over time to get in as quickly as possible, but the psychological realities of doing that. And to some degree, as Doc said before, by the way, buying in thirds, not, not, not saying you're always going to buy the second and third thirds. It's just a startup position so you can watch the business and add more if it, if it, if it appeals to you. That's also super smart. So um, I think buying slowly probably for most people is the most sensible approach. Any more on that one, mate? I have nothing to answer. All right. So here's the second part of Bernard's question comment. Adding up, what? A few weeks ago, someone wrote in that adding up was hard. Yes, it is. Now, this is not mathematical adding up. This is David Gardner, adding up. Uh, and David Gardner, Doc, you're, you're more a David Gardner devotee than I am, but effectively, you know, people say, I double down. When the stocks are down, I'm going to double down. I'm going to add more money to a falling position. David Gardner's general approach, not, not exclusively, but general approach, is to add up. In other words, he buys more when the shares are already up. And that's that's a, a rule breaking idea. Not many people aim to do that, um, most people as the share price go up, think, oh, I missed the opportunity. I'm not going to buy that. But if it falls, I'll buy some more. David's point is if great businesses are doing great things, the share price should go up. But equally, if they keep doing great things, you should be happy to add more. Is that is that a fair summary from your perspective of the concept of adding up the David Gardner way?
1: Yeah, the adding up basically is all about adding on business performance, right? I and mean, the business performance typically results in share price actually moving upwards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thinking behind this is that, you know, market is actually while it's bumping the price up, market is really mm-hmm. not that good at thinking out well, what this means in terms of you know the long term. and therefore there's still upside left, which is why you mm-hmm. can add mm-hmm. on the way up because typically these are growth companies with long you know runways for growth and things like that. So
0: nice. Thank you, Matt. So uh, Bernard goes on. Uh, I am a recovering value trap victim, and here's a tip for getting around this shortcoming. That I heard on a USA podcast from one of their listeners. This works for me, so I thought I'd pass it on. What I do is take a look at my portfolio as a whole. I list my positions by the percentage they make up in my portfolio and what percentage gain the position has made since I bought them. So you've got company, then the portfolio proportion, then the percentage gain in three columns. I then divide the percentage gained by the percent position percentage of the portfolio. Stick with us here. He says, for example, if I held shares in the sell food company and had risen 50% and made up 5% of my portfolio, I would divide 50 the gain by 5 the percentage of the portfolio, giving the position number 10 in total. I then compare that value against all other position values in my portfolio. Comparing the two, I then have a simple screen that would tell me to consider more, uh, buying more of one company in a higher total. So if a total was above 10 in this case, they'd buy more instead of buying the lower total. So in other words, if the the gain was great and it's a higher percentage, uh, worth buying more. The higher the final number, the more I should consider increasing that position in my portfolio, he says. I do then quickly look at other info too, but not deeply. There's only a screen, but it works to counteract the bargain hunter value trap victim that I can be. Bear in mind, I don't trade in and out of positions. I don't buy the dip. I'm waiting for a bump in the share price, and I buy and hold long. He says lots of Gs. Also, if memory serves me correctly, David doesn't exactly mean don't ever buy on the dip, as we said. All right. Uh, He said, give it a go. Prove it to yourself. Don't believe the fools. Then take some theoretical positions in a mock portfolio and see what happens for you when you do it. See how you feel. It's training. He says thoughts maestros what do you reckon doc is that is that one way to do it look at the combination of the the waiting and the gain and use both of those as a as a way to overcome that bias almost kind of program your buying or or use a use a, a simple formula to kind of take some of the the, the emotion that the concern the worry out of it
1: um maybe like i mean i don't know like it, it it's it's an interesting thought though right but like, the only thing I can think of is there's a chance that you can get overweight a particular position yeah, yeah. by this, this model, right? It's one. I mean, it well,
0: be, he, he uses he uses the, the the denominator as the size of the portfolio, which would decrease that that number. The the kind of the the ratio he's calculating is lower if the if the denominator is higher. So the higher the proportion, the harder it is to add more. Is kind of his idea, but it still isn't impossible. If the gain's been big, um, it also does push up the, the both the gain and the percentage at the same rate. In theory, he's trying to make it counteracted, but it doesn't do it entirely exactly.
1: Yeah. So I, I like. I mean, I. I, I I just something I'll tell you what I do like I have I I try to go for like positions I think I make, like I have high conviction in I have a theoretical threshold of how much cash I will put right and at, at max and then at that point okay. I basically stop
0: yeah as a percentage like, of the portfolio is that kind of is that your threshold yeah, is that at, at, any, right. at,
1: at a given point in time a percentage yeah, right, of portfolio right. that this is how much I will invest Maximum in in total dollar values. And actually, not even, like in percentage, right? Some, I, someone says, "Think in terms of absolute dollar value." Okay, uh, and, and you say, "Well, why?" Right? Well, like here's the thing, right? If ten thousand dollars is five percent of your portfolio, as an mm-hmm. example, it might mean different things than say one hundred thousand dollars being five percent of your portfolio, right? Because mm-hmm. while one hundred thousand may be five percent and ten thousand might be five percent, but one hundred thousand technically just you think in the absolute dollar terms right may mean different things and you can use any other other number whether it's 10,000 or 100,000 but you know sometimes the absolute dollar value also means something right and and I sometimes look at that and say well you know that's a lot of capital in one company and you know, therefore there's no <laughs> yeah, reason right. for the you yeah. know the capital infusion to be any higher than that Um, again it's not perfect again you have to always find something that works for you Uh, and I think that's my bottom line is that you you need to really find something that works for you Um, right if you've got a position you know you can call it 3% but if if that 3% position means something to you in other ways then maybe that's important for you to consider
0: nice I like that mate Bernard finishes with a a nice bit of encouragement a bit of praise for us so I'm not going to complain but a nice bit of encouragement for our listeners as well he says for new listeners to Motley Fool hang in there the Motley Fool people have totally changed the financial direction of my family. They will for you too. Now, we can't make that promise, but uh, Bernard could certainly mention that. I should say that past performance is no guarantee, uh, but uh, Bernard didn't. I just have to because that's, uh, that's our job. He says, I'm amazed that I can now gain more in a day than I do in a month in my social service job. I love my job, but I didn't take a vow of poverty to work in it. So investing helps me counteract the financial impact of my chosen field of work. I squirrel away spare cash straight into my trading and super accounts and I try to live off off only 70% of my income. Yes, it takes some sacrifice, but I find most shiny new things lose their appeal and value quickly while my super and investments keep appreciating. And he finished with no funny hashtag. I'm too old for that. (laughs) Full on, Bernard. Bernard, thank you for the message. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for the questions. Mate, probably more importantly, thank you for the work you do in your social service job, mate. I'm sure there are are people, families, communities who are much better off for the work that you do. Um, Hopefully, if we've been able to help you offset that um, financially, then, great. I'm really, really pleased that we've been able to do that, mate. But thank you, most importantly, for the work you're doing uh, with with people in your community, uh, Doc. Any, any last thoughts on that from Bernard?
1: I, have, you know, I have again nothing to add to that. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory in its own right, right? So I'll let the words speak for themselves.
0: Beautifully. All right, so Bernard, thank you for doing that. We'll finish it there, mate. If people want to follow us or hit us up on the socials or on email, if you're if you're if you're per email. That's okay. Email us info at fool.com.au. Leave us your feedback, thoughts, suggestions, comments. If you want to be on the socials, we'd encourage you to. It's fun there. Well, sometimes. It's fun if you follow the right people, by the way, and you're followed by the right people. Uh, go to Twitter, where we all are. You can get the Motley Fools account at the Motley Fool AU. You can get Doc's account at Anirban Mahanti or at TMF Scott P. We're all there. It's one big foolish party. If you're on Instagram, you can't get Doc yet, though I'm pretty sure 2021 is going to be his year. Uh, I'm TMF Scott P. And The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. And of course, you can get us on Facebook, which Doc is almost certainly not going to be on. It's uh, at The Motley, uh, sorry, the Motley Fool Australia or at Scott Phillips Money is my account. Of course, thank you for spending your Sunday afternoon, maybe Monday morning with us, depending on when you are joining us. We appreciate you taking the time uh, and spending a little bit of uh, of time we hope to have made you a little bit smarter happier and richer in the process of course if this is your first time listening and you haven't yet please do subscribe to the podcast you can use itunes you can use your favorite android podcast app or you can use podcast one on any of those platforms they will uh, notify you when a new episode drops that's always nice Not sure other apps do it but certainly podcast one does once you subscribe so i kind of like that about it i'm a new er listener using Podcast One, but it's working pretty well for me. We are part of the Podcast One family, so I'm a bit biased, but um, we don't get any benefit from recommending the podcast app. So whichever one works for you, works for us as well. And if you do get a chance, please do leave us a rating or a review. It does help other people find the podcast, helps um, yeah, people realize and, and, and understand what they're getting. Good and bad, but we prefer good if you don't mind. And of course, you can get a dose of Foolish straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next Friday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.